God's love is truly amazing. We can't sing of it enough uh, that he would die for us and die for our sins. It's truly wonderful to think about how much God indeed loves us and all that he's done for us. Uh, if you would, this evening, turn with me in your Bibles once again to Ephesians 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at the same passage from this morning. This is part two of the message that we were looking at uh, beginning uh, this morning. Uh, we began covering the five problems with Calvinism. And this morning we covered the first three points of Calvinism and what the Bible says about each. And tonight we look at the final two points. So let me call your attention back to what the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16, the Bible says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Over the course of our lives, we're going to hear things that are going to cause us to have questions, may even cause us to have doubts. And my goal with these couple messages is that we never have questions and doubts when it comes to our spirituality as we hear about a number of different beliefs that may be out there. I pray that we are perfected, that we're strengthened, that we're edified as these verses talk about in the knowledge of what God has taught and how his word has clearly laid certain things out. The goal is that we become stronger. We're only as strong as the weakest member. So the goal is that we become stronger together as a body of believers in the word of the Lord so that we're able to clearly discern between what is truth and what is error. More than anything, the devil wants us to be a church that is divided. He wants us to be a church that is not strengthened, a church that doesn't stand firmly upon stable ground. The devil wants us weak, he wants us disoriented, he wants us easily swayed, he wants us naive to the things of God. He wants us to be carried about with every wind of doctrine uh, because when we're not standing upon the firm word of God, we're as weak and feeble and frail as anyone else. He wants us reading as many books as possible, watching as many videos as possible, and filling our heads with as much wisdom of man as possible, just so that we're not spending the majority of our time in God's word and growing closer to him. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, visit many books, but dwell in the Bible. I love, love, love reading. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I don't want to show anyone my bank statement. And that's not because I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing, but I'm afraid that you'll all think I have a problem with buying books. I love reading. And the majority of the books I read are, are books on theology. But even as good as some of those books can be, none serve and will ever serve as a substitute for the Word of God. Read as many books as you can, but make sure that the Word of God is always your final authority. 
God's word has stood the test of time. God's word is God's revelation to man. What better book to be reading? Everything else we read is man's revelation to man. Don't ever value the thoughts and the opinions of a created being over the creator God. Now, as we wrap up this study tonight on the problems that we see scripturally with Calvinism, allow me to quickly recap what we discussed this morning. The five points of Calvinism are summarized in the acronym TULIP. It starts off with total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Occasionally, you might run into someone who claims to be a one-point Calvinist or a two-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist, and whatever the number variation may be, they, they have their own idea of what they believe, and only part of it do they actually hold to. But personally, I don't think you can be a one or two or three or four-point Calvinist. I think you're either all in or you're not in at all. If you truly believe the teachings of Calvin, you need to believe all of them, or else they all start falling apart if you're trying to cling to just one or two. These five pillars hold up an entire belief system, and when you take one of them away, it falls apart. Personally, though, I don't know why you would want to identify yourself with the views and teachings of any mortal man. I'd rather stick to what the Almighty and all-knowing God teaches and follow what the Bible says explicitly. We mentioned this morning that total depravity, according to how Calvinists view it, refers to man's inability to respond to the message of God and the gospel. We pointed out several verses which clearly speak of man's free will to respond. Whosoever will. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. Uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, whosoever will, let him come. Over and over, the Bible talks about man having the opportunity and the, oppor and the, and the will to choose to come and to follow after God. So to say that man is unable is unscriptural. God doesn't wake us up one morning and then reveal to us that we're now saved. He draws us to himself through general revelation, through what we can see with the world around us, and then it is our responsibility to respond to his special revelation, which is his word, in faith. That is what we're called to do. Unconditional election is the view that before the creation of the world, that God predestined people to either heaven or hell. That God set it all in motion and he declared it to be so done, sealed, everyone's fate is, is determined. But according to this view, men have no say in the matter, therefore, because our eternal destiny has already been predestined. Nothing we can do can ever undo what God has predestined. However, the Bible clearly teaches otherwise. Nowhere in scripture do we ever see it spelled out where anyone is ever predestined to either heaven or hell. What God has predestined, as we talked about this morning, are two things. The means of salvation, which will be through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and the results of salvation, that those who believe in Jesus Christ will be conformed into the image of him. If everyone was predestined to either life in heaven or to damnation in hell, there would be no need for us to spread the gospel. There would be no need for us to come to church. There would be no need for us to read the Bible. There would be no need for Christ to have ever come and die on the cross for our sins if it was already predestined that every single person is either going to go to heaven or hell and God is already predestined who's going to be where. All of that is, is rendered moot. The Bible teaches, does teach us that God does foreknow all things. But God doesn't have to predestine all things in order to foreknow all things. God is all-knowing and he knows the hearts and the intents of every single individual. This doesn't mean that he's pre-programmed and is controlling every action, every thought of man for some specific end. We also see the view of limited atonement. 
Limited atonement is the view that Christ only died for the sins of the elect, for those who were believers. But over and over, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. 1 John 2, 2 again states, For he is the propitiation of our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not everyone is going to be saved, but Jesus made it possible for everyone to be saved if they respond to him in faith. He nailed every, everyone's sin to the cross as much as any believers were nailed to the cross. Ultimately, in God's foreknowledge, he knows who is going to believe on him and he knows who will reject him. But the Bible is clear that Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world. And that brings us to problem number four, and that is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now, this view teaches that those whom God saves cannot resist him or reject him. When you take away the free will of man and suggest that God has predestined every person to either eternal life or to eternal damnation, you need to jump to this conclusion to keep that belief system standing or else everything comes crashing down. If God chose you for eternal life from before the foundation of the world, you can't then therefore reject or resist what God has predetermined. Otherwise, you've rendered God not an all-powerful God, one who can be overpowered by us and our decision. In other words, God is forcing his grace upon you whether you want it or not. The problem with this view, again, is that there is nothing in the Bible that even remotely hints towards such a thought. This view suggests that man has no part at all in his salvation and is never called upon to respond to the offer of God's salvation and grace by placing his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I've had conversations with people who identify as Calvinists who have likened their salvation experience as if God one day just flipped the switch and turned a light on in their lives and they essentially woke up and knew that they were saved. And I asked them, show me in scripture where you see that. And unfortunately you can't. Because it's not in scripture where we see God just flipping a switch on or enlightening our eyes or snapping his finger and saying, now this person is saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that God forces his grace upon any individual. In fact, the Bible teaches quite the opposite. We read about how much God wants people to be saved and how he often reproves people through his word and does it over and over and over again, but never forces it upon them without their choice. Listen to what we read in Proverbs 29 and verse number 1. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, He that being often rep reproved hardeneth his neck shall, shut, shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now tell me, how can, how can he reprove someone often and yet they respond by hardening their neck if God's grace is irresistible? It's ir either irresistible or it's not. And if it's irresistible, then a person can't harden his neck against what God is trying to do. Now we've just made it not, not, not irresistible, but, but resistible. If God's grace was resistible, then a person wouldn't be able to harden his neck against him. Who can stand in defiance to God's irresistible grace? Apparently, if you harden your neck enough, though, according to Proverbs 29 verse 1, you can overcome the power of God. God reproves sinners often by drawing them to himself, but they must believe on him or else they're eternally doomed. Notice also what we read in Proverbs 1 and verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, Because I have called 
and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. Again, God is saying, I'm calling you and offering my gift to you, and you're refusing it. So again, if his offer is irresistible, how can it then be, how can it then be uh, rejected and resisted? If it's irresistible, they would not be given the option to resist it. But apparently, these individuals, as he said, God is calling sinners, and yet the Bible clearly states that they have a free will to resist his offer. When Jesus argued with the Jews about who he was, listen to what he says in John chapter 5 and verses 39 to 40. He says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that you might have life. Ye will not come to me, he says. If God's grace was irresistible, they wouldn't have the option to come to him. It would be done. If he offered it to them, they'd not be, not be able to resist it. And if God's grace was irresistible, and God forced his salvation on whomever he chose before the world began, why then would Christ taunt these unbelievers about not coming to him if they never had the opportunity to come to him? What sense does that make? He says again to them, he says, you will not come to me that you might have life. If he's offering this irresistible grace or forcing it upon them, how would he dare taunt them and say, you don't come to me when I want you to? If it's irresistible, it's irresistible. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preached a very powerful message to a group of people who would eventually kill him, listen to what he said to them in verse number 51 of Acts chapter 7. He says, He stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. Ye do always, get this, resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Stephen reveals a rather historical pattern of resisting God. He was preaching a powerful message to these people that they might receive Christ, that they might be saved. But just as their fathers resisted the grace of God, he says, you're doing the same exact thing today. No matter what you're told, God never forces his salvation on anyone. God definitely offers salvation to everyone, but leaves the decision up to each man. He will continually reprove sinful man and show him his need for salvation. As long as there's life within the man, he's going to show him the need for salvation. But ultimately, the decision is up to man to come to Jesus Christ in faith. There will not be a single person in hell who did not choose to be there through rejecting God's gift of grace. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, it makes it very clear that God's gift is indeed a gift not an irresistible force. These are very familiar verses. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A gift ceases to be a gift if it is forced onto someone. These verses state that God's grace is offered through faith, not force. There is a response necessary on behalf of the individual to receive God's precious gift. God has done all the work for our salvation to be full, for it to be eternal, for it to be complete. But we must have faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work to receive the free offer of his grace. I've had Calvinists tell me that us placing our faith in Christ is a work. And you know what? They have to say this. 
to be consistent with their views because if placing our faith in Christ is work, the Bible clearly speaks against a works-based salvation. Therefore, salvation can only be possible through God forcing His grace on individuals. However, the Bible clearly teaches the difference between faith and works. That one is work and one is faith. And they're not intermixed. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere is faith defined as work. In fact, here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, again, we're definitely told that faith is not works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. They're not two and the same. They're two completely contrary ideas. Faith is not works. God has freely offered salvation to all who believe on him. In Titus 2.11, it tells us, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Wait, does that mean then that everyone will be saved? If God's irresistible grace has appeared unto all men, shouldn't that mean that all are going to be saved? If God's grace is irresistible, no one can reject it. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men. Am I reading that wrong? No. Is this verse saying that God's irresistible grace has appeared to all men. Did God just make a mistake and undo all of his work in predestination when he predestined some to hell and now he's forcing his irresistible grace on every single human being? The problem with Calvinism is that the more scripture you read, the more the system falls apart. And the more you have to get creative with scripture and redefine what verses are actually saying. What the Bible teaches is that God makes his offer of salvation available to all. But men are responsible to believe and to reject him, and they have the opportunity to do that. Problem number five, the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Now, this view holds that every elect person, and again, when we talk about elect, it literally only speaks of it as individuals in their current state. It never speaks about the people who are going to be elected or who are future elect. It always speaks about people in their present circumstances. If they're believers, they are the elect. But the perseverance of the saints, this fifth view holds that every believer will know they are saved when they've persevered until the end. I've had Calvinists tell me that they only know for sure that they're saved if they've persevered until the end. The implication being is that if you don't persevere, then you weren't predestined to eternal life. What a miserable way to live your life. I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in what the Bible teaches, the preservation of the saints, that God preserves us. Why would God save us only then leaving it up to us to persevere? God knows us too well to leave that up to us, and that is why we're told as believers that we have eternal security and that we're preserved by God from the very moment that we are saved. In Jude 1, it tells us, it says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and get this, preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught in John 10, 27 to 29. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. The very moment we are saved, God secures us in the palm of his hand. And the image we get there is that we are held in the palm of Christ's hand and God the Father's hand comes over the top of us and says, we're holding you together. 
There's not a threat, not a danger of any harm coming to you. People may pluck at you, but no one will ever pluck you out of my hand. We're secure in him forever. There is nothing more secure than that. We're also told in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, get this, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. God doesn't go through all the work to make salvation possible for every single individual only to expect us to maintain it. If we are responsible to persevere until the end, we would squander our salvation in about five minutes. I'm so glad that God doesn't expect me to persevere, but that he instead preserves me and keeps me by the power of God. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the perseverance of my Savior. Now, I'm not a betting man, but I would definitely bet everything I have that Christ is more capable of persevering than I ever will be. I'm not foolish enough to trust my salvation that I will be able to maintain through a fallible person like myself. Rather, I'm trusting that I am eternally secure because my faith rests in the all-powerful hand of Jesus Christ who never fails. Every believer can be comforted in knowing that when we're saved, God marks us off as his own through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within every single child of God, and he remains within us until we're received into the glories of heaven. Listen to what we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 30. It says in Ephesians 4 verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. God marks you off as his own. He stamps you with the Holy Spirit. You're forever marked off as his, and the work of the Holy Spirit in you isn't complete until you're received into the glories of heaven where nothing can ever come and harm you at all. The moment we trust in Christ, you're eternally secure in him. You don't have to worry about persevering because our Savior has already persevered for us and promises to keep us secure until we're forever in his presence. A number of years ago, I was having lunch with a, a new local pastor to the area, and I wanted to get to know some of the other pastors in the area, build some relationships with men of like faith. And as we sat down for lunch, the first question he asked me, which I knew we're not going to get off to the right start here, the first question he asked as we sat down, we ordered our lunch, and he said, so are you Arminian or are you Calvinist? And I'm thinking, are those my only two options? Now remember, from the morning message, Arminian is a belief system which states that a person can lose his salvation, among other things. I knew the lunch wasn't going to go well, and I told him, I said, are, are these the only options that I have? To which he responded, he said, well, Christians fall into either one of these two categories. You're either Calvinist or you're Armenian. And I said, get ready, because there's a third category of Christian that maybe you're just meeting today. Either you follow the, the teachings of Jacob Arminius or John Calvin, is what he told me. Well, things got really awkward when I told him that I don't believe either of those men, but I believe in the undefiled word of God. I disagree with all five points of Calvinism because I believe in God's word. 
I believe that man is sinful. I believe that he is deserving of eternal damnation. But I also believe that God has given man the ability to respond to his gospel call and to receive his offer of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in what Revelation 22, 17 states, where it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I believe it. I completely reject the claim that man is unable to respond to God because the Bible makes it clear that man must turn to him in faith. God draws man through the teaching and through the preaching of the word, but man responds to God's message in faith. I reject the unbiblical idea that God predestined everyone to either eternal life or to eternal damnation. Such teaching undermines the need for the gospel and the need for Jesus Christ, the need for missionaries, the need for pastors, the need for anything. I do believe in the biblical doctrine of predestination, that God predestined that people would only be saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ and that those who are saved are conformed to the image of Christ. I believe that God has foreknowledge of everything, everything that will happen, every thought that we'll have, every action that we say, every word that we speak. But foreknowledge doesn't require God predestinating each individual person. I reject the claim that Christ didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Again, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. How do you get around that? I reject the claim that God forces his irresistible grace upon any individual. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And the Bible clearly states that it is a gift that is freely offered to those that will receive it in faith. The Bible teaches that God often reproves man and urges him to turn to faith in Christ, but that man is able to harden his neck and able to remain in defiance and in opposition to God. God has given man the ability and the opportunity to receive him or to reject him, but never forces one or the other. And lastly, I reject the claim that believers must persevere in order to maintain our salvation or in order for us just, just to be sure that we're saved. The Bible teaches us that perseverance is not up to us, but to Jesus Christ. Believers are preserved and we're kept by the power of God. Amen. We need to be confident. We need to be confident in what we believe and, and be able to scripturally support everything that we believe. There is far too much out in the world that is nonsense, sometimes just outright garbage, that is disguising itself as theology. If it isn't supported in scripture, don't believe it. Don't believe it. If you're forced to redefine and reinterpret scripture to believe something that you've read somewhere in some other book, don't believe it. Don't ever approach Scripture with the mindset that you have to make it say what you want it to say because John Calvin said it or Charles Spurgeon said it or D.L. Moody said it, so therefore it has to be here and I'll make it say it if I need to. Let the Bible mold your views of God. Just because you read some inspiring author's views of God, make sure it agrees with the Bible before you accept it. We must always be like the Bereans where we go through and we search the scriptures daily, even when the apostles were preaching to them. Again, like I said this morning, I'm preaching this message, these couple messages. Don't take what I have to say. Go home. Read through the verses. If you want my notes, I'll give you my notes so you can see the verses that I've highlighted. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. I'll go to the grave convinced that I'm not wrong about this. I believe the Bible is crystal clear on each of these issues, but don't take my word for it. Go to the word of God. What I've shared with you are not my opinions. What I've shared with you is what the Bible says on these issues. There may be times where I will express my opinions on specific passages that may be not clearly defined as black and white, but this is not one of those times. The Bible's black and white on these issues. 
In these five points, the Bible is crystal clear. To my knowledge, at no point in the life of this church have we ever stood for anything that even remotely sides with Calvinism, and we're not going to start today. We're told in Romans 16 and verses 17 and 18, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. We can't be simple. We need to know what the word of God says. We, we can't be, as it says here in, first, in Ephesians chapter, 11, chapter 4 and verses 11 through, through, through 16, that we can't be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine that is just laying in wait by cunning craftiness and the slight of men who are trying to deceive us. We need to be firm and steadfast in what we believe. My desire is that we would be a church that is united in the faith and in the uncompromising truth of God's word. That we would be seeking to build one another up. That we would be edifying one another. That we would be strengthening one another and equipping each other for the work of the ministry as it spells it out here in Ephesians chapter 4. I pray that we would all be supremely confident in what we believe. So that when outside influences and outside belief systems try to creep into the walls and to the fundamental aspects of this ministry that we would quickly dismiss them as being unbiblical may we not be so simple-minded where we're swayed by every smooth talker who can quote a few verses and sound convincing i pray that we're putting more confidence in god's word than in any teaching of man i pray that when we need to admonish one another that we would do so but we would do so in a spirit of love for the sake of strengthening the bonds of the unity here in the lord's house i pray that christ would always be preeminent in all things in this church and I pray that as we as the body of Christ would be fitly joined together, as verse 16 says here, that our faith in him and the knowledge of his word would be strengthened and growing day by day, each one working with his own God-given abilities to strengthen the whole body and to stand firm in the face of everything that is contrary to God's word. There's all sorts of nonsense out in the world. It's hard enough dealing with just the negativity and all the tactics of Satan, but when we have things come in that are disguised as theology, it makes it even worse. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, there's nothing new in theology except that which is false. And I believe that 100%. We're being swayed by smooth-talking people who can quote a Bible verse, who can quote a few verses, and to sound convincing as they do so. But our faith must rest firmly in the Word of God. Because one thing I know for sure is that the word of God doesn't change. It doesn't get updated from year to year. There are no revisions that come out. It is constant. It is true. And it has been preserved from the very beginning against all opposition. Don't put your faith and trust in anything else but in the word of God where we are to apply ourselves to faith and practice and to hang all that we believe in on the truths of these words. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we know that it is indeed a firm foundation. Lord, if we're standing upon it. Lord, I know that there is all sorts of negativity. I, I know, though, Lord, that there's all sorts of different influences that come at us trying to, Lord, force upon us man's wisdom, man's theology. And as enticing as some of these things may sound, Lord, help us to always come back to your word. Help it to be your word, Lord, that governs our thoughts and our actions and our views and of, of you especially. Lord, regardless of who it is that is standing and preaching, Lord, it's going to be a fallible human being. 
May we not put stock in a person, but Lord, trust that you are the one who has given us your uncompromising truth. And Lord, as much as the world changes from day to day, I'm thankful, Lord, that your word has stood the test of time and it remains constant and true and that not one of your promises has ever failed. May we rest in your word and stand upon the solid rock, the Lord, that it is for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.